Welcome to the Evergreen Review Podcast. Your host is Dale Peck, writer, professor, and the editor-in-chief of the Evergreen Review. Welcome back to the uh, podcast of the Evergreen Review. I'm your host, Dale Peck, the editor-in-chief of the Evergreen Review, and today we are joined by Jeffrey Renard Allen, um, acclaimed author of the novels Rails Under My Back and Song of the Shank, the short story collection Holding Patterns, and the poetry collections Harbors and Spirits and Stellar Places. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Yes. So I might ask you a question about poetry because I didn't realize you wrote poetry, but um, we know you mostly at the Evergreen Review um, because you have, uh, you published our first ever piece, um, Urgently Visible, Why Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, And you're about to publish a new piece um, with us um, uh, on South Africa's COVID-19 response. Um, uh, Both of those pieces are really fantastic. We're incredibly pleased and proud to be publishing them. Um, But I wonder, do you have any plans to publish um, a a book of nonfiction, either collected essays or some kind of book-length project? Oh, yes. Uh, I'm actually working on a memoir now. I, I just started it, so I've only completed one chapter. And I've got um, a book of essays that's more or less ready to go. You know how these things work. You'll, I'll pass uh, both books along to my agent and see what she can do with it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I really had a little interest in writing nonfiction. Um, but after my last novel came out in 2014, people started um, asking me to write personal essays. So that's really when I started to get interested. Is the memoir a kind of, you know, whole life project? Or are you looking at something particular in your life? Yeah, I've been, um, you know, I've been mulling over it for quite a number of years. And uh, what I've decided to do is to write a book that focuses um, primarily on my mother or, uh, or I should say my, my, what it was like being raised by a single mother in Chicago and, you know, and um, segregated Chicago and, poverty and all those kinds of things. And um, so the the book is, uh, it's called Mother Wit. And the way I envision it is that the first part will, in fact, deal with my relationship with my mother. And um, it will probably go up to the year, rough, uh, maybe to about the year 2008, which is when my mother had to enter a nursing home um, where she's been for, you know, since then for the past 12 years. Um, She'll be 90 years old in a couple of months. And, um, wow. Um, you wrote a lot about her in, in the essay. I mean, she comes yeah. across as um, uh, a, a strong figure. Um, yeah, you uh, know, t- to that point, uh, you know, she contracted the COVID virus and she's made a recovery, you know. I was wow. uh, very concerned, but... Did you see that article that just came out? I saw it in the Times. It's probably been elsewhere. Um, black people are dying um, uh, at two and a half times the rate of white people um, yeah, yeah. nationally. Um, right. so places like my home state of Kansas, they are dying at seven times the rate oh, of white wow. people. Yeah. yeah, that is a concern because, you know, my oldest kids are... Uh, in Brooklyn, and in fact, they're uh, the zip code where they're in, you know, Starrett City. Um, mm-hmm. It's been one of the hardest hit uh, areas in terms of infections in New York, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, so I've been following all that, but uh, yeah. But, you know, in terms of the memoirs, uh, I'm actually thinking about it as maybe a two a book in two parts or mm-hmm. um, two volumes. The first part about my mother, and then the second part about the, the motherland in quotations, that is to say, my um, 
my travels to the African continent and my involvement with African writers and intellectuals and, and um, things of that sort. Okay, so um, I want to kind of d dive right into maybe a, a few evergreen related um, uh, topics, i.e., you know, things, that, uh, issues, um, questions that stem from the pieces you've written for us. You opened that piece, um, Urgent Vi Urgently Visible, I think it was 2017. You opened it with the line, white folks in America are the most dangerous people on earth. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> years into this uh, disastrous presidency, um, yes. how do you feel about that statement? Uh, <laughs> well, well, I put on the spot, so, <laughs> you know, I, 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 maybe I can answer the question this way. You know, I think the, I would stand by much of what I said in that essay, even though it's been a few years, but, but you know, what I, the thing that I got wrong in the essay was Donald Trump, you know, I, um, I thought he would be impeached. Uh, you know, I, 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 maybe I was being overly optimistic as a lot of people were, I mean, we all knew that he was going to be a, a bad president, but uh, no one had any idea that it was yeah. going to be anything. I mean, it's the most, um, you know, it's just, it's so disheartening and frightening and everything else. And uh, and what makes it all the worse is that he, you know, he does have a certain percentage of, of Americans, um, mostly white, white, certain percentage of white Americans who, um, and I think given his, um, you know, position as the most powerful man in the world and our position in many ways as the most powerful country in the world. I do think that um, our attitudes towards race have a tremendous impact. You know, attitudes about everything have a tremendous impact on the rest of the world, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess I stand by that statement. <laughs> but it's not, it's certainly not meant to be racist in any way or or prejudicial. It's, it's just... Um, it's a projection based on some of the, some of my understanding of things. Yeah. You know, it's observational, you know, at this point, 200 and what are we, 40 years into the American experiment, you know, um, white people's yeah. record kind of speaks for themselves. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it was meant to be a provocative statement, but I do feel, you know, I strongly feel that one of the, one of the longstanding problems with America is that we do have this mythology about our history. This is a country that was built on genocide and on slavery, which are things that get, you know, overlooked in terms of our mythology. So I think that's they were there were missteps on the way, but right, you know, exactly, never really part exactly. No, yeah. so that, that's definitely you know the history I was taught growing up. In your fiction, you're very well known for your use of vernacular um, and for like various rhetorical flush flourishes, um, uh, including extensive use of stream of consciousness. But when you write nonfiction, you know the language is very plain, very blunt, very you know fast moving. Is that a, a, a conscious decision? Do you feel like 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 there are, are different needs um, uh, in the way that you express yourself? You know, in your fiction as opposed to your nonfiction. Yeah, I think in some ways that. That approach to nonfiction um, came naturally because, um, you know, I'm bad with deadlines, among other things. As a fiction writer, you can generally take as much time as you want uh, to get a story right or a, a, a novel right, as it were. And I tend to be a slow writer. But when I've uh, approached nonfiction, I tend to um, have a deadline and I tend to do a to wait until the last couple of days <laughs> to, to write as quickly as I can. Uh, part of it is just, um, you know, I do spend a lot of time thinking about the subject and, and note taking and that kind of thing, but um, I do try to write quickly. Uh, 
however, you know, in the in the memoir that I'm that I'm working on now, and in some of the uh, the essays I've been working on of late, I've, I've tried to be more attentive to language. Uh, I don't want to say that uh, that I'm engaging in a lyric essay, which seems seems to be just one of these trends now. But uh, I guess I'm trying to blur the lines between fiction and nonfiction more in in um, in the in the narratives that I'm working on now, nonfiction narratives. Yeah. Right. Is there is there a, a tension for you between um, a self-consciously literary language, um, a language that's steeped in various literary traditions, and then uh, the voices of uh, the human characters that that you're rendering on stage between you know perhaps just simply between you know um, the vernacular and a, a more what belletristic literary language. Yeah, I mean. Um... I think part of it is that for me to get really excited uh, in particular about writing fiction because, you know, writing fiction is so hard uh, as you yourself know it. Uh, you know, I think for me to get excited, I have to be challenged and, and motivated. And part of that is for me is to, is to get excited about the language. So I would say that language is always my first entry point into a narrative. And I'm thinking about, uh, how I can make the language mine in in a particular text, and then I would also say that uh, I think I have a I think I have a good ear for the spoken word, and uh, part of that is is just um, doing a lot of listening and having grown up in a place like Chicago, and and uh, and then having lived in New York for um, for many years, and uh, and just listening to how people talk I, that always interests me and inspires me. And gets me to think about character, uh, but by the same token, I also feel like that I come out of, um, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a Chicagoan, but I feel like I come out of a kind of inherited Southern tradition stemming from people like Faulkner and um, mm -hmm. and uh, as a black writer, in many ways, I want to claim Faulkner as a black writer, <laughs> despite his many. False I, I, I hate defining your entire life by you know a, a couple of pieces of writing, but in that in urgently visible visible, you do point out that your mother was born in born in Faulkner country and as yes. well that you yeah. were born the year after Faulkner died. Um, yeah. Describe that relationship, literary relationship. Well, you know, uh, one of my mentors um, was a, a, a writer from Mississippi named Sterling Plump, and he's still very much with us and. Uh, he's primarily a poet, and he was also from Mississippi. And he used to joke and say that Faulkner was the the best black writer of his generation. You know, and uh, I think what he meant to say by that is that you know, um, and I agree uh, that you know, certainly by the late 1920s, Faulkner was engaging with black culture and black language and the black people of Mississippi that he knew. Whereas um, many black writers were still trying to engage with this kind of um, already outdated literary language and you know uh, this sort of mission to impress the white reader with their humanity so i think in that and i, I think in that way faulkner um he opened up a lot of things in terms of the literary language that we have as americans and it took me a while to really dive into faulkner but um, i've returned to him all the time and and i'm still very much impressed with his interest in place and, and again in many ways the place that he comes from is the place that my people come from in Mississippi, and so I'm in, I'm really interested in these, these questions of place and how place um, has has its own language, and then how you can essentially transform that language 
uh, into something literary. I, I think that's still part of my project of, as a writer. And I, I do feel in many ways that's also part of the, um, that was sort of the original project of America writers and how would, you know, how would American literature be different from the British literature that it, that, that it inherited, that it comes from. And, uh, and so I think, you know, this is the same kind of question that people like Whitman and, and Emerson and, and others have, were asking as well, Melville and, and so on. Yes. Um, I was looking at a review of Song of the Shank, which I want to come back to in a minute, but it talked about you and Toni Morrison as being two writers, two black writers in particular, who were very influenced by um, Faulkner. And although I have always thought of Toni, writer, Toni Morrison as a writer who was influenced by Faulkner and um, know from conversations with you of your own love of, of, of Faulkner, I never actually would have thought of you and Toni Morrison as similar writers, you know, other than the fact that you are both black writers. Um, First of all, I'll say this. I, would, I, I don't know if I would call Morrison an influence. I'm not sure what influence really means always uh, for a writer, but I certainly... Um, really engaged with a number of her novels. Uh, I really like Sula, for example. And, I and love Bo- Sula. Yeah. My favorite of them all. Yeah, and I, I think Beloved is one of, the, one of the great novels of the 20th century. I mean, I read it many times. I taught it many times. And um, I, feel, uh, I feel that that novel in and of itself is in conversation with Falkris, Absalon, Absalon. It deals with some of the same kinds of issues. Uh, about place and and uh, language and other kinds of things, but it's uh, but that novel is also in my mind um, as I remember, particularly when it came out. I was in graduate school. One of the theories that was being banded around at the time, literary theories that was that was uh, popular at the time, was this idea that uh, stories are are relative, the narratives are are relative and essentially unimportant. You know, they're just constructions of language, and uh, in Beloved uh, Morrison certainly, you know, goes hard against that idea and tries to show that uh, that we have to tell our stories, we have to own our stories and tell them. And I th- I think that's very much part of uh, one of the projects that Faulkner was engaged in, which is um, you know this continual retelling of the story of the original sins of America, which are primarily slavery and genocide. And I, I think. One of the things that uh, Morrison was taking from Faulkner, um, I also have this theory, uh, as you know, Morrison was an editor at Random House. Yeah. And I have, a, I have this theory that, um, that uh, Morrison actually learned from some of the uh, very prominent writers that she published, um, many of them I, who I have tremendous respect for. So for example, she published Gail Jones, and I, I really love Gail Jones's Corregidor. I just read <laughs> Corregidor, um, three weeks ago. It's an amazing book, and I've taught it. Uh, I used to teach it at the New School all the time. And, uh, you know, she read, uh, she edited um, Leon Forrest. Uh, he was a Chicago writer uh, who uh, I'd met a couple of times, and uh, she was actually very close friends with Leon Forrest. And um, um, Forrest is, is really sort of forgotten and not known much among writers anymore, but, you know, he had a very particular kind of style, which I always sort of, uh, I would describe, uh, you know, what, <laughs> what, what it would mean to write like uh, Charlie Parker, uh, you know, high on speed or something, you know, but right, right. Right in the language of a, of a preacher, you know, <laughs> of a black preacher. So that's just uh, part of it too. I, I, I think that Morrison's um, 
style changed from book to book. And I think part of that was, had something to do with some of the writers that she was editing. Um, you know, I, I read Morrison a lot and I don't know like what I, what else I really took from her. You know, I don't know what I, I can't really pinpoint what I took from her. I mean, I, I admired her, I admire her attention to language and um, yeah. this kind of um, almost fetishistic way that she um, used names and, and um, things of that sort and the kind of humor in her work. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a lot of that stuff is, is in Faulkner as well. Right. Uh, but I mean, of course, her influences were coming from other places as well. I want to return to to a point that um, you made a little bit earlier about one of the ways that you find your way into a novel um, or get interested in a novel is by finding a voice for the novel, finding a voice for the characters. Um, uh, How did you do that with um, uh, someone like Blind Tom in Song of the Shank? Yeah, that was uh, a difficult process, I would say. I've talked about this in other interviews, but I'll just mention again briefly here. I was reading uh, Oliver Sacks' book, a uh, what is it called an anthropologist on mars and uh, and that's when i first uh came across the blind tom story uh, Sachs talks about blind tom in a footnote in that book and um and so i began to uh, do some research and investigate on my own um you know blind tom was this real historical person someone who had actually lived and then my challenge became you know how to turn his life into fiction uh you know i am a I'm a novelist and writer of narratives, uh, fictional narratives. Uh, so that was sort of um, the thing that I stumbled with for a number of years. Some of the early drafts of the novel, I tried to do a, essentially a chronological uh, biography, a sort of a fictional biography, and that didn't work. And uh, But I always had in mind that I would have these multiple voices for multiple characters in the book. And as, And some of the early drafts, I even had a, some of the sections um, told with Blind Tom as a point of view character. But um, ultimately what, what happened is I decided that, that uh, you know, the, the official stories of Blind Tom was this autistic savant and this kind of thing. I decided that in my novel, I would leave that a question, you know, was Blind Tom a savant or whatever, or was he simply a musical genius? In the um, later drafts of the book, I decided to take out all the sections that I had written through Blind Tom's point of view. So in the novel, you, you only observe him through the eyes of uh, other characters. They're, they're basically about seven main characters in the book. You know, each uh, character has their own section and and sometimes the um, the style or the narrative device in each chapter changes as well. So, uh, so there are, you know, some sections that are more kind of stream of consciousness and then they're other sections which are uh which are kind of like a pseudo 19th century victorian uh you know narrative or whatever so that was my thinking um but at by the same token i also feel like that uh range of voices is a reflection of who blind tom was Mm -hmm. because he was this musician who was capable of playing anything that he heard Uh, he was the um you know the ultimate imitator and so in many ways, I felt that um, having a mix of voices and style would be the ultimate reflection of, of Blind Tom as a voice, as a character, even if I didn't enter his mind. You know? 
there's such a commitment in, in all of your work to, to um, American and African-American history and the um, African-American experience. Um, but there's also a commitment that doesn't show up, I think, as much in the fiction, a, a, a love of and interest in um, Africa. Um, you have yes. been to dozens of African countries. Um, you've lived in many of them. Um, uh, and you are in the process of moving to South Africa. So I'm curious, I think first, just on a literary level, you know, how has your engagement with, 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 with Africa, um, both as a place and as a cultural tradition, you know, influenced your work? And then, and then why? You know, my interest, my, my um, well, let's, let's go back. So when I was in grad school in, in the 80s and so on, like many college students of the time, uh, you know, I was interested in South Africa, which of course was still under apartheid then. I got involved in a divestment movement. Um, I was also involved in issues around Central America and, uh, and that kind of thing. So that was, I, I would say that was really my first interest in Africa, starting with that. Um, and then it so happened that uh, I got to meet um, the South African poet, Kea Petsi Kodasili. He was the National Poet Laureate of South Africa. Um, he died a couple of years ago, but uh, he was a good friend with this poet Sterling Plump that I mentioned. Uh, uh, Kodasili had gone into exile in 1963, and uh, he lived in among many places around the world, and he, he lived in Chicago for a number of years. And uh, so that he was sort of the, he was the first African writer I knew per se, and, uh, and um, so I knew him for about 30 years. But um, I didn't really decide to visit the continent. Um, you know, that decision was uh, almost came by mistake. Uh, wasn't a wasn't initially a conscious thing. So I was teaching in Saint Petersburg, Russia, in 2004, and I met the um, late Kenyan writer Binyavanga Wanena, uh, who many people may recognize. Uh, so um, Binyavanga and I became good friends, and uh, you know he was uh, he was an amazing person, and. Um, uh, very much like me in many ways, and that he was he was a generous spirit and uh, often taken advantage of by people. Uh, but he was also my opposite. He was, um, you know, he was a very sociable person who liked to to um, engage with people, and I tend to be more reclusive. Uh, but also, Benyavango was um, he was just a, a tremendous force and uh, in in trying to um, help develop young African writers. And so um, in 2006, I, I went to the African continent for the first time, and that was to visit Binyavanga. And I spent about, um, I guess I was there for about three weeks. And so that's really where my interest began, that sort of first journey to the continent. And, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, I've learned much, which is a way of saying that I had a lot of naive and sort of romantic expectations, but that's really where it began. And so I went to as I mentioned, I went to Kenya in 2006. Then I went, then I went back again later that year to teach for uh, Binyavanga's um, Kwani organization. And um, at that particular writers' conference, there were writers from all around the African continent, and it was such an uh, amazing experience to be there and to get to meet all these people um, and to engage with them. And so I decided at, there that I would uh, try to. Um, do a similar conference in West Africa, you know. Um, and so um, through the help of a good friend of mine, Arthur Flowers, Arthur was actually in Kenya at the time teaching for this conference with me. And we, um, 
And uh, so, we've, so we formed an organization called the Pan-African Literary Forum. Uh, that was Arthur's uh, name for the organization. And, um, and we set to work on, on doing a conference in Ghana. And then we got a third person involved, uh, the, the writer Muhammad Nasihu Ali, a Ghanaian writer, uh, who was a friend of mine in New York. And, um, and so the three of us, you know, um, were able to put together this conference in um, Ghana with the help of the, the New School's writing program, actually, who, who gave us uh, assistance on many levels, and, and, uh, and also with the help of NYU um, as well. And so, um, you know, so that was, um, the idea was to bring writers from around the conference, around the continent, and we, we provided scholarships for many people. Uh, no one really paid to, to come, and, and we had a, a number of prominent people teach for us, including the poet Yusuf Kumiyaka. We were in Accra for a week of workshops, and then we went to um, Kokobrite, which is a town outside of Accra for a one-week retreat. So the conference itself was for two weeks. Um, and um, I actually got sick with malaria. That's a whole, another long yeah. story. And, um, and then our plans for doing future conferences never came, to, came together again, you know, never um, came to fruition. But um, I did do some work with other conferences. Uh, there was a conference in Zanzibar that I worked with. And, and so, and I also helped, I organized, uh, a national reading tour in America for uh, Coda Silly, the poet I mentioned before, the South African writer. Uh, Coda Silly brought a contingent of uh, South African writers to that conference in Ghana. And these are, uh, you know, people, uh, many of them who remain some of my uh, closest friends today. So that's sort of where it stemmed. Uh, it was, it started really with this interest and this friendship with Binyavanga, who had this generous heart uh, for young writers on the continent, and I wanted to be involved in in that um, mission he had. Uh, it seems to me when I read your work that 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 you know you have a deep love of Africa, um, a, a strong interest in it. And I'm not I'm not quite. Wh where is that coming from? I mean, you ended up marrying an African woman, and now you're moving to to South Africa. You know, I mean, not just going to visit. You're moving there. You know, um, the intention of staying forever. You know. What is your your interest in in Africa as a continent or South Africa as a place? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. This is something I need to write about them in more. I think initially, you know, uh, uh, and and again, I'll say um, this all came through my dim understanding of what I was experiencing. I think initially, I felt like I was connecting. You know, I I like many African Americans, uh, I've often felt that that I that I don't belong here. That is to say that I've been treated unfairly. And, uh, and you know, I can tell many stories about that. So um, when I made that second trip to Kenya, I, I, I connected in a way that I thought was almost magical, honestly. And uh, I, you know, uh, I felt that, that for the first time, I, I was able to experience something other than just anger and frustration with America. That's That, that was a really over overwhelming and overpowering uh, feeling at the time. And so that really uh, became like a driving force for me to do more on the continent. I will say, uh, you know, so that was the, the positive aspect of it, which is to say um, that uh, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't really engaging 
what the actuality of the continent. Once you spend more time on the continent and you get to know people, you, you realize that, uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll speak as an African-American again. Uh, I do think that uh, African-Americans often veer between two extremes and in, um, in our um, understanding of Africa, we, we do have this kind of uh, romanticizing of the continent, which is uh, something that, that I was engaging in for a long time. And then at the other extreme, we have this we have this thing where we buy into some of the stereotypes that the larger culture has um, portrayed about Africa. And I've never, you know, bought into any of that. Um, but I do think that um, that my initial interest in the continent was uh, in part driven by uh, romanticism. But that was that romanticism came out of a, a real sense. Of a need of a need to belong, uh, a real sense of a, of, a, of feelings of alienation in America, of, um, of being so angry and frustrated often, and having you know having grown up in a segregated city like Chicago and uh, and you know or and and just the various things that I you know would see uh, in my daily life, uh, you know before the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. It exploded onto the scene. You know, I, I I lived in New York for 23 years, and I can remember like every other month there would be a story about a black um, unarmed black person who was killed by a cop. I mean, yeah. you know, that was and and I had been hearing these stories all my life in Chicago, and 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 become aware of. So you know that that was just one reality. But, you know, that dates, that goes back many years. You know, I was a kid when the Chicago Police Department killed Fred Hampton 50 years ago. I still remember, you know, some of the images from that. So, you know, so that was part of this need to uh, connect with a place where I, where I felt like I could do something more than simply be angry all the time around issues of race. And I think, uh, well, you know, my reasons to relocate to South Africa are many, but but part of that reason is, you know, I need a break from America. That's that's that is part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole Trump experience has been so frustrating and uh, uh, exhausting, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and and it's not just Trump, but it's there's so much about the country that frustrates me. And uh, I mean, he he clearly isn't the source of the problem. He's a symptom of the problem. You know, he he entitles the problem to speak that much more openly and that much more aggressively, yeah. um, gi- yeah. giving giving voice to feelings that that you know they felt like they had to hide when we had a black president, or they had to hide, you know, um, because you know liberals said it was not okay to say these things. Now 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 they can say the things that they've been feeling all along, but um, right right you know, kept inside. You know, one of the, yeah, you know, one of the things that interests me about South Africa, you know, it's a country of deep problems. Uh, and I often, in some ways, feel like it's, like it's uh, uh, you know, an exaggerated version of America um, because, you know, the, you know, the segregation, all these kinds of things are there, the um, uh, poverty, all these things. I mean, you know, so it's a, it's a country with deep social problems from, you know, um, violence against women and children, to uh, crime, to racism, um, et cetera. But at the same time, I feel, uh, and I feel, I think a lot of people feel this way. You know, other people, other people who see themselves as Pan-Africans, I still do. A lot of people feel that, you know, uh, you know, it, uh, there is still great potential there and that, that in many ways it is the hope of the continent. 
many people on the continent feel that their leaders have betrayed them, you know, and, uh, that, you know, for generations now that they've been betrayed and, uh, and that the um, wealthy are only out for themselves, which is true for America as well. But there is a sense that if South Africa can get it right, you know, then that there is a great hope for, for the continent, uh, you know, particularly since there's so many young people there on the continent who, um, who want to have a, a better future. So I, I you know, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of the, the building of a society. I want to do something that I feel is meaningful towards the building of a society. And I know that there's much work to be done in America, but right now I feel exhausted because I've been, I've been fighting the same battles for 50 years, you know, and, uh, it, you know, uh, things, things change, but things also don't change, you know, if that makes any sense. So you arrived in South Africa, I think, three days after the lockdown started. Was that right? Well, no, uh, I actually arrived before the lockdown. Before the so, lockdown started. Yes, yeah, so I, I arrived on, uh, I arrived on March the, let's see, I arrived on March the uh, 10th or March the 11th and the lockdown began, I think, on the uh, 28th officially or something like that. So You were surprised how South Africa um, responded. Um, it seemed like you were pretty skeptical of their ability to handle this and, and it seems like you think that they did a pretty good job early on. You know, the reality is that the, you know, since the the creation of the democratic gov- government uh, with Mandela as the first president, the reality has been one of such disappointment. Uh, you know, you know, the corruption and um, the various failures of the, um, of the ASC governments that have been in power. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, many people, I don't think I was alone in feeling this. I think many people just felt, well, you know, they, they're not going to take this seriously, but, um, but, you know, to my great surprise, you know, uh, and I think to the surprise of many, the um, government did take it seriously and they took it very seriously. And um, they were aware that if they didn't do something, uh, if they didn't have this lockdown, then millions of people could die. I mean, uh, I know you talk about this in the piece, and um, uh, I encourage everyone, by the time this is live, the piece should also be, be up um, to, to read the piece to get the uh, full, um, uh, your full take on the subject. But do you want to talk a little bit about why, you know, you think that South Africa was able to, were the things that they did um, that, that were smart um, in response to, you know, the sort of early warnings about coronavirus? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, in early March, there were there were still very few cases of the coronavirus on on the African continent, and most of them were in the in, you know above the Sahara, um, so in the um, northern countries. So there was this there was this thinking that the that the virus would would not hit sub-Saharan Africa, and there's still that thinking on the part of some. Um, that was an interesting question for me, just in the larger context of South Africa. And I, I didn't write about this really in the piece, but I, I came across an, uh, a post by, uh, supposedly, this Ghanaian guy who worked at the WHO, the World Health Organization. And he speculated that the reason that the virus had not taken a hold on the African continent yet was because uh, Africa is still fairly isolated from the world which I thought was a really kind of interesting idea that, that Africa is isolated. He gave some numbers, which I don't fully remember, but he mentioned uh, that although it seems that many, you know, China has a huge role on the continent there now, um, although that is true, not as many Chinese people travel to the African continent as they do to, uh, let's say, some of the Western nations. So, for example, the numbers, my numbers might be slightly off, but I believe the, I believe the figures are that about 400 and 
40,000 people came to America from China before the, before the U.S. banned flights from there earlier this year. So clearly that many people did not uh, go to the African continent this year. So there was this question of uh, isolation as in some ways protecting the African continent from the virus, at least for a time. So, so there was that. There was that question, and there were, you know, then there were a lot of people engaging in, in these kinds of um, essentialist ideas that Africans were were somehow, you know, immune to the virus and this kind of stuff. When when the when it was clear that the COVID would be a threat, you know, South Africa acted early and decided to do this lockdown. It seems that one of the things we're learning now and is that the virus was in was in many Western countries before they were even aware of it, which is to say that um, I think uh, by the time that Italy and some of the other places began to do lockdowns, it was already too late because the virus had had been in those countries for even before they were they were aware of it Italy and France and I believe scientists in France in particular are looking at this question of whether the virus was there as early as November. Let's say South Africa, in contrast to the U.S., which is maybe the important comparison to make here, in contrast to the U.S., South Africa acted immediately to lock down the country to slow the spread of the virus, whereas here in the U.S., Donald Trump was, you know, uh, denying the number of cases, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. So, you know... Until it was entrenched before we decided to lock down the country. Right, yeah. So... uh, and it's still even amazing now when you, you when, when you know every so often President Ramaphosa will go on TV and address the nation. Usually every two weeks or so, and just, you know, and he he ha- he's wearing a mask, and you know, and uh, he uh, and the, you know he and his other government officials are being informed by scientists both from South Africa and from the larger international community. And so you know they're they're doing all the right things that they can do, and um, and uh, so you know that I think that that sort of leadership really was unexpected, um, given some of the failures of the previous administrations in South Africa, and just given some of the corruption on the continent. Um, you know, so at, <laughs> at the other extreme, you know, I I saw a story. Uh, you know, there was a story that that was in the news a few days ago about how Madagascar had supposedly uh, discovered this cure for COVID. You know, and oh, and they were already bottling it and selling it. And then, and once the World Health Organization decided to test it, they then accused the World Health Organization of poisoning their. Yeah. You know, uh, one of my students is from Iran, um, but you know, he he was talking with family back there and supposedly there's someone fairly high up in the government who's who's basically carrying around like a, a cardboard box with tinfoil on it, you know, <laughs> saying that, you know, it emits something that just kills COVID, you know, it, right. it just makes it go away. It's, you know, it's, right. it's the Iranian version of um, uh, gargling with bleach or exposing yourself to UV light or, or, or something like that. <laughs> right, exactly. Probably, yeah. probably a bit of that in a lot of countries right now. Yeah. So, you know, when I was there, uh, I would watch the news every, I, I developed a habit of watching news each morning and just seeing what was going on. And uh, and it really did look like, it looked like the lockdown was going to not succeed because um, there were always, there are all these different challenges that the country had to deal with, but they, they always found some way to respond to a particular crisis and uh, which was an indication that they were taking the matter seriously and that they uh, wanted to do all the 
could to save as many people as they can, you know. Right. Um, uh, two, two terrible stories today, you know, the first, um, the black people in America are dying at two and a half times the rate of uh, white Americans. And then, uh, um, you know, a report saying that, you know, all, although South Africa is doing what it can, you know, you can't keep a country on lockdown permanently. Um, uh, and, you know, scarcity of resources, they're projecting 40 to 45,000 deaths by the end of the year. Yes, yes. You know, the lockdown succeeded in slowing the transmissions. And the word success is uh, not the, the right word, but it's the only one I have. Uh, you know, so they were at the start of this crisis, they were projecting that 15% uh, of the population could die. So, yeah. you're, you know, we're talking about um, like nine or 10 million people. So uh, in the end, maybe 40, you know, perhaps 40,000 people will die, but uh, it's, it won't be nine or 10, you know, 10 million people. It's going to be tragic either way. Yeah. You, you, you voice a fear at the end of the piece um, uh, that, that, you know, Westerners, um, white Westerners particularly, um, have a conception of Africans as, as, as sick people. Um, yes. That yes. Essentially, when we took care of HIV, and I put big quotations around took care of HIV, you know, in, in our countries, we sort of turned our backs on HIV in Africa um, yes. uh, and allowed it to become endemic there. And that you, you fear... Um, you don't say this, you quote someone else is saying this, um, uh, that there is a fear that, that um, the West will allow COVID to become endemic in Africa. Say a vaccine is developed and it becomes available. Uh, how soon would that vaccine be available to Africans uh, is one of the questions. So, um, you know, so when the uh, retroviral drugs were available for the treatment of HIV, that had a, obviously a huge impact in slowing the number of people who died. Uh, but you know those drugs didn't really become available until the early part of the 20, 21st century, really, um, in places like South Africa and other countries on the continent. Just, just for people who don't know, which is to say, about a decade after they were available in the yeah. United States and Western Europe. Yeah, and uh, ironically enough, uh, the person who, in many ways, was responsible for making them available, helping to make them available, was uh, George W. Bush. I mean, it was, the, it was the maybe the one good thing he did when he was in office, you know. All right. But, um, but yeah, he, he, he did have uh, this initiative to get the drugs available there. And even today, I mean, South Africa is still the world's epicenter of the HIV AIDS crisis. And, um, and uh, the city of Durban in particular is where the highest number of cases are. You know, you know the, the, the um, overwhelming presence of, of HIV AIDS uh, happened in the 90s, um, in, in part because of the uh, poor leadership of uh, the president and Becky at the time, who denied, made all kinds sorts of denials yeah. about AIDS and, and that kind of thing. But also in part because, um, you know, Western countries didn't make these pharmaceuticals available there. So yeah, so there's this, there's this fear that um, the virus could essentially be eradicated from other parts of the world, but then it would still be very much alive on the continent. Uh, right. Even in South Africa, for let's say, for example, um, you know, so many people die from tuberculosis, and this is true for many uh, countries on the continent. Uh, tuberculosis is not a disease that we deal with much in the West anymore, but uh, that's still very much alive on the continent. And that's true for you know the measles as well, and, and a number of other uh, diseases which are treatable and. Um, so, you know, these in, the, in their own way become African diseases that are 
And you've yeah. talked about as well that, you know, if there are situations, you know, you know, of extended lockdown um, or extreme curtailment of activity, you know, in various ac- countries, then the prophylactic programs, the disease fighting programs for other diseases then get, you know, um, put on hold. And so, you know, you mentioned yes. malaria before and you mentioned in your piece, you know, um, that if, if people can't distribute these, these nets that are coated with insecticide, which keep people from getting bitten by um, uh, mosquitoes that have malaria, then the projected death toll was really high, um, going up like 98% or something like that. Right. These are all very real medical issues. And uh, I, I would say, um, you know, I, I would say that the, the African Centers for Disease Control uh, should get some credit for trying to tackle these issues. And, uh, and I think there, there's a realization that, that African nations have to do everything they can on their own to, to band together to, um, and not to be reliant completely on, on Western help. You know, that is, of course, one of the larger Western narratives about, about Africa, which is uh, that Africans can't do anything on their own. They need the help of white Westerners. I had gone to the Zanzibar Film Festival and I think it was 2006 or so. And I remember um, that uh, there were all these technical problems there. And whenever anything went wrong, uh, you know, some white people, some of the white people there would say, oh, well, it's just Africa, you know, it's just Africa. So uh, there was this expectation that um, of, of incompetence. And you're in Africa, there's, there has to be incompetence. There has to be this lack of infrastructure. There has to be all of this. And then later I found out that the Zanzibar Film Festival is one of the most well-funded festivals on the, on the continent. So meaning that uh, the people who run the festival just chose not to do, to invest the money in, in making the festival. You know, I, I think there has to be some kind of accountability. There has to be a conversation around accountability. Um, but I, you know, I think, I think some in power in African nations, you know, I think they like to cater to this um, stereotype of helplessness. Uh, you know, they they use that to their own advantage. Yeah, you know, the the Somali uh, novelist Nuruddin Farah believes that uh, that all um, aid to Africa should be cut off. That he thinks that Af- that there should be no aid to Africa at all, and then Africans have to be let alone and left alone to figure out their own problems. And that's the only way, uh, you know, that's probably an extreme uh, idea, but um, I'll just put that out there. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not self-governance unless you're actually governing yourself. If you're, exactly. you know, if, if, if you transfer the, the power from colonial institutions to economic institutions, you know, there, yeah. there's, there's, there's still a very strong tether there. Um, so I want to finish up with a question um uh about the writer's relationship to all of these issues um you know you you choose to write about very politically charged matters i think you know perhaps you could say that in your novels you do this on the more cultural individual level focusing it through um characters and the nonfiction that i've seen you you tend to speak in a much more uh global um manner but um you mentioned to me in a comment um uh in an email you know that that you think that there's a way in which 
um, on the one hand, writers tend to conceive of themselves as as a kind of activist, and then on the other hand, that in the current political climate, you know, you mentioned Trump, but I think you could say the same thing about Bolsonaro in Brazil, or Putin in uh, Russia, or Modi in India, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, that these political leaders have kind of co-opted the idea of, of, of activism. Um, yes. So where do you feel vis-a-vis -vis all that, you know, um, writing about things that you think need, people need to pay attention to, about problems that you think need addressing, or things that need to be changed um and yet not to you know put too, too depressing a spin on it these incredibly reactionary uh, absurdly corrupt self-interested figures that nevertheless seem to excite such a large portion of the population populism that this kind of right-wing populism has co-opted the idea of activism and uh and um, so, you know, uh, one of the things that struck me is after the impeachment hearings and Trump was, you know, nothing was done and Trump was cleared. Uh, what really struck me was that there was the silence, that there was, you know, why weren't there millions of Americans taken to the street after that happened? You know, that, that was really the thing that I kept thinking, you know. And um, so I, I, I think it's important for writers, particularly here in America, um, I think it's important for us to do the work that we do to write, and that should be uh, the thing that drives and engages us. But you know, on the other hand, I think that we shouldn't confuse writing with activism. That that uh, that writing in and of itself is not a form of activism, or it's not always that. And I think I think that that sometimes too many of us gain a, have this sort of sense of self-importance by thinking, well, I, I wrote about this, and therefore I'm somehow changing the world and it's not that simple so the for me in a very scary way like the 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 powerful are only getting more powerful you know and our which means that our hopes of changing the world for the better diminish you know more and more so i think it's very important that we not lose sight of that fact and that we really find ways to engage and to um, act up and to fight back and uh, Writing can be a form of silence if you think that your writing in and of itself is going to change the world. You know, usually it's not going to change the world. I mean, that's a... It's hard to underestimate um, that liberal belief that that reading about something is the same thing as doing something about it. You know, yes, that, exactly. that, that when we learn about coronavirus in South Africa, that we have therefore helped to fix the problem, you know, um, yes. even though all we've really done is, you know, you know, describe a situation to ourselves uh, and, and all that, which is why, you know, not just as, as, as writers, but also as readers, you know, it's, in, it, you know, we, we, everyone can't do everything about everything, you know, you have to pick and choose your battles, but, but yes. you, like, we, we cannot lull ourselves into thinking that just because we are aware of a situation that we've also done something about it, you know, it re requires simply more than the interaction of, 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 you know, eyes and words on a page, you know, sometimes you've got to get out, you know, and, and do something. So often as writers, we we're talking to the, we're speaking to the like-minded people who already share our position. So, so again, I, I do think that, you know, writing, the writing is the profession and then the activism is the activism. I mean, I think those two things have to both happen. Right. And, uh, you know, and uh, otherwise, you know, if we let them, they'll just uh, walk all over us, you know. I want to thank you very much. I encourage everyone to check out African Lives Matter by Jeffrey Renard Allen at Evergreen and also his first piece, Urgently Visible, Why Black Lives Matter. Thank you all so much. Thank you.